What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Dr. Devin Walker, and I'm here with Javier Wallace, and we are Black with Blue Passports. This podcast explores the impact that international travel has on Black Americans' pursuit of liberty and racial justice. This podcast is sponsored by DDCE Global at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from the World Walker Foundation and Black Austin Tours. All right, and welcome back to another episode, Black with Blue Passports. Super excited today. I got my co-host, Dr. Wallace, back with us. He had to take a you know, a couple episodes off as this man just got uh, his PhD accomplished, got a new position at Duke. So very proud of this, brother. And uh, since we have another FAMU grad today as our guest, I got to pass it over to Javi and let him do the introduction. Hey, appreciate that, Dr. Walker. Uh, it, it's been real out here in these academic streets, man. <laughs> I can't even front on some real stuff. No, nah, but everything's going well. I'm glad to be back and I'm even more excited to be here with a rattler, a FAMU rattler. Now, I know everybody. Hey. Okay, there we go. There we go. We hear a little snakes in the background there. Not <laughs> everybody's as excited as I am about being from FAMU, just because how transformative it was in my life. But I definitely want to highlight Ernest White, who we will be having a great conversation today. This is somebody who I've been following for a long time. Uh, a super long time when I left the country and moved to Panama back in 2012. Fly Brother was definitely something that had always been on my radar. A, a blog that helped me really think about who I was in the world and my position to go forth and go see beyond my border. So I'm going to give a quick, well, let me just say, welcome, Fly Brother. Ernest, before I get into the his intro, but I just wanted to say welcome and tell you thank you for being here with us today. Thank you, my brother. I appreciate it. You know, family rattler love all the way. Uh, you know, we we love all of our HBCUs. We love all of our folks, no matter what, no matter you know what your level of formal education is, et cetera, et cetera. And at the same time, we have to represent our set, which in our case is the set. Uh, on the highest of seven hills, Tallahassee, Florida. Hey. Uh, so yes, rattlers hey. in the house. And at the time of this recording for everybody who's tuning in, not at this time, happy homecoming to all the rattlers in 2021. Cause we're at that time of the year. I play football too at fam. So this all is right, a very right. big year, big time of the year for me because it brings back a lot, a lot of memory. But nonetheless, I'm going to go ahead and read a bit of Ernest White II's bio so we can get going and y'all have a will have a better idea of who he is. Um, you definitely should already know who he is, but I know for a lot of the young people that are listening to us at different universities and thinking about their world, their, 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 their way in the world through travel, you're definitely somebody who they can learn from and take cues from as they organize their life. But Ernest White Second is a storyteller, explorer, executive producer, and host of a television travel docuseries, Fly Brother with Ernest White II, currently airing in the United States on public television stations and create TV nationwide. He is also founder and CEO of Presidio Pictures, a new film, television, and digital media studio centering BIPOC, LGBTQ+, and senior, le- senior elder narratives. Also, Ernest 
Writing includes fiction, literary essay, and travel narrative having been featured in Afar, Time Out London, USA Today, Getaway, Skylife, Ebony, The Manifestation, Sinking City, Lakeview Journal, Matador Network, National Geographic Traveler, Brazil, Embrace. Oof. Uh, I, mean, God, I feel like that bio about to go on and on. Brad Tajikistan. But yes, Brad, you, I'm sitting over here like, I have done a lot. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you really have. Uh, and and I'll, I'll skip, I'll skip and endow you a little bit to the part, hold the undergraduate degree in political science from Florida Agriculture Mechanical University, October 3rd, 1887. And, and <laughs> That's not when I got the degree, though. <laughs> <laughs> Creative writer from American University in Washington is currently earning his certificate in business management and entertainment from the University of California, Los Angeles. Welcome, Ernest White, again. The second, I'm sorry, again to Black with Blue Passwords. We're so happy that you're here. Doctors Walker and Wallace, again, it is an honor, a privilege, and a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Most definitely. So I'm, I'm going to jump off with a question. Um, coming back to that FAMU piece, Ernest. Mm. Um, I went to FAMU. I played football. I always wanted to study abroad, but I never felt like I could because mm. I played football and I was on scholarship and there were a lot of constraints there. And I was just wondering, did you ever have an opportunity to study abroad while at FAMU? If you did or if you didn't, can you talk about that as well? And then what is that experience like for students at HBCU? The HBCUs to have international education departments. And then if you remember all of this, how do you get from the highest of seven hills in Tallahassee and all of the identities that you encompass and walk with in your life to where you are with Fly Brother right now and all the things that you're doing? Well, okay. So you ask about six questions in that one question, but I feel like I, I will be able to, to, to tackle a few of the, the, the answers. And I think it just boils down to, well, it boils down to a few things. One, I'm from Jacksonville. So two hours away from Tallahassee, which means I'm Southern. I was raised in a community of like-hearted individuals that no matter what taught us how to be in the world, to be respectful, to engage with people, to communicate, to open your mouth, boy, when Deaconess Jonathan Young talking to you, you know, <laughs> that kind of old school Southern engagements that we were taught was what allowed me to go out into the world and open my mouth when people that I didn't know were speaking to me, hold my head up high, represent the community that I come from and not from a place of lack or uh, a, a place of from a place of um, minimizing our, our, our powers. I was able to show up in that space. Uh, with the foundation that I received coming from a Black community in the South. So I think, you know, we definitely have been um, kind of, you know, flim-flammed, bamboozled, led astray, run amok, all of those things when it comes to seeing what we do have within us as inferior and as barriers to being out in the world. When actually those are the things that will carry us very far when we go, when we recognize that not only do we have the capability, but we deserve we have the right, we have the responsibility, we have the gift uh, of having the world open to us and we have the responsibility of stepping into it. Uh, so that's kind of the overall thing, but going to FAMU uh, offered me the opportunity to engage with black folks from other parts of the world, not just from other parts of the United States, but from the Caribbean, from Africa, uh, intersectional 
cultures where you were meeting uh, black folks who were not black American necessarily. They might have been Latino, still black identified. But the point is you were seeing the variety, the breadth and, and depth of blackness uh, as it existed in the world going to, to FAMU. And especially coming from Jacksonville, where we were all black American Southerners. Uh, and so just to kind of engage, find out more about places that I might have wanted to travel to, that I wanted to engage with. And Florida A&M did have a very strong uh, foreign exchange uh, study abroad program, actually, while I was there. We, I went to the Dominican Republic and took Afro-Dominican history and culture. Uh, I took um, Spanish courses. I stayed with a family. And that was all through the, uh, the FAMU satellite campus at the Pontificia Universidad Católica Madre Maestra, or Pucamaima, in Santo Domingo, the capital. Uh, it was, I mean, they had a picture of Fred Humphreys, bless his, you know, rest his soul, who was the, the president at the time in the office. Uh, it was, the, the, the program was facilitated by Ms. Karen Mitchell over in the study abroad program office. And not only were there fam Ewans that were attending this program, but there were also other HBCUans from Wiley College, from Prairie View A&M, who had participated as well. So it, it was a small program. And I'll tell you, one of the challenges, of course, was the perception that's that that doesn't exist as much now i'm talking about the mid 90s when i was at famu and this was way before instagram this was even before blogging and all the other social media platforms that show us show us out in the world back then you know there were very few images of black people traveling internationally you had books written by james baldwin and you know uh zora neale hurston Catherine dunham um, uh, Ralph Ellison, W.E.B. Du Bois. So you had folks who had gone uh, abroad and represented, but they were in written books. We didn't have a lot of the images that entice people to go out and take pictures and, um, you know, at the pyramids and, and on sand dunes and all that. We did have Malcolm X, the movie that had come out uh, where you saw Denzel as Malcolm X traveling to Mecca, traveling to Egypt and that kind of thing. But I'm saying all this to say, those of us that did choose to go abroad, those of us that did choose to travel outside of our comfort zones, were doing so in an environment of uh, most of our elders seeing that as being frivolous, as being prohibitively expensive, as being a waste of time and energy and resources when we should have been focusing on getting jobs and, and that kind of thing, or a more traditional um, path to success as, as was perceived by our parents in the 20th century. And we are blessed now to have times uh, uh, that are different, but they're different partially because many of the other people who were traveling with me at the time were, were doing that. We were kind of breaking down barriers. We were having difficult conversations with our parents about why we felt called to travel abroad, where they wanted us, bless their hearts, to do more traditional things like get jobs. Not that you can't travel abroad and work, but there was just a lot of uh, cultural baggage that we had to work through back then that nowadays doesn't even exist. So, you know, I, I hope that kind of answered a little bit of what you asked. Yeah, no, that, was, that was great. So I'm interested, man. <laughs> I studied abroad a lot as an undergrad, too. I had great experience. I did some blogging. But I didn't get my own TV show. That didn't happen for your boy, right? I, I, I didn't pursue it. I didn't know how to pursue it. So how do you go from traveler to TV show host. Well, I didn't get my own TV show either. I created my own TV uh. show. And I think that's, you know, an important distinction. 
I wasn't just handed some, you know, I wasn't cast in a series that is now on PBS. I was approached by a good buddy of mine from FAMU, Chester Jones, SBI grad, uh, who was in, always involved, always interested in film and television, as was I, as was a few other people. But uh, he was the co-owner of a small startup cable network back in the early 2000s. And he was like, or mid, late 2000s, actually, he was like, man, listen, you know, we want to commission you to do a TV show. At that point, I had worked as a journalist overseas. I was living in Brazil. I had lived in Colombia for four years. Uh, I had basically, I, I was, had lived abroad for about eight years at that point and had been a journalist for almost 15 years when he approached me and said, hey, listen, man, I want you to do this show. You're a great storyteller. You've got a lot to, to say. My blog at the time was Fly Brother with Ernest White II, which, I, which you know, Javier was mentioning. He used to read. I, he was in Panama. I was right there in Colombia, right next door you know, living the experience of being a Black American in Latin America. And I was one of the few brothers to actually be writing about this at the time. Most of the bloggers were Black women, our sisters. Uh, but I was one of the few that was writing about my experiences, not only traveling abroad, but living abroad as an expat, which are two different things. Um, and so essentially, he was like, you've got all this body of work, and we feel like you do well with a television series. And I was like, no, TV, psh, I write literature. Uh, <laughs> I had my MFA in creative writing from the American University in Washington. And I was like, I don't even watch TV, make TV? You're tripping. And the universe was like, oh, no, uh, just sit down because we're about to close every other door in your life except the TV door. Uh, and so <laughs> in the end, I stopped resisting it. I leveraged the, the, I engaged the community that I had built over the years in the travel industry and the travel journalism space. Uh, my, my colleagues and coworkers who we were all supporting each other in our various freelance careers and um, was like, all right, well, so we're going to do this TV thing. We have a distributor, which is my buddy's cable channel. Uh, he was like, we can't pay you, but we can teach you all about the business. We can bring in, help you bring in advertising and we can have you, it'll be a non-exclusive contract. So should CNN or some other network want to buy it, it'll be free and clear for that. Uh, so we started filming based on uh, engagements with destinations around the world, people who I had worked with. Uh, they were able to offer us in-kind services and host me and my crew to come and film. We were trying to figure out what the theme might be because God rest his soul, Anthony Bourdain at the time had food and travel on lock. And if you remember me from FAMU, you might remember that I was quite heavy. So I enjoyed food. I've always liked food. I eat, but I wasn't going to sit there taking pictures of food. Uh, so I was like, well, food isn't necessarily my theme. Architecture, something I love. That, at that time, I feel like would have been hard to make interesting. Not now I could probably make it interesting, but back then it was like, mm. so what would be engaging but authentic to me? I was thinking friendship and connection. That's honestly the, the, the biggest takeaway for me when I travel to places. I've always been able to connect with people on a deep level, to engage, to learn, to, to, to create lasting relationships that we maintain through the technology that we have at our disposal. So before, you know, you'd meet somebody, have a cool conversation, and then you'd go off on your way. If you did exchange information, you would have to send them a postcard or you would spend $6 a minute on a, a long distance phone call twice a year. Well, now we can talk to folks every day on, you know, through these various channels that allow us to, to create a global community that we have access to. And so I figured, honestly, I've been so blessed with phenomenal people in so many different places. I want everybody to have that feeling. 
I want everybody when they watch my show to be like, dang, like, I, you mean I could go there and have friends too, like this? Yes. So that's the theme of the show. That's what we ended up uh, filming. And then in the midst of filming season one, the, uh, the and, and we filmed in Sao Paulo, Brazil, in uh, Toronto, Canada, in Tbilisi, Georgia, Northern Namibia, uh, Stockholm, Sweden, Mumbai, India, Tajikistan, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, Cape Town, South Africa, Bogota, Colombia, and Casablanca, Morocco. And we were in the middle of filming season one when that startup network ran out of money and went out of business. And so we were a cart with no horse. And through, again, through connections, through friendships, through relationships and a community, I was able to connect with Northern California Public Media. And we were able to, uh, through my friend also, um, Michaela Malozzi, who has a travel series on PBS uh, called Barefoot with Michaela Malozzi. It's a show where she goes dancing around the world. She was instrumental in connecting me with the right people. And now we've got a show on PBS, season two coming out in January. That's what's up. That's what's up, man. That's amazing. I appreciate the detail in that story. And when you talk about friendship and connectivity, is there somebody you met that just immediately comes to mind? Obviously, you've traveled all around the world. You've sure you've met tons of people, but who comes to your mind like when you think friendship and connectivity? Oh, my boy Roberto Manrique. He's a, a huge telenovela star in in Latin America now. When we first connected, you know, he we were just hanging out, and he was like, "Oh, I'm an actor." I was like, "Oh, that's impressive." He was like, no, I, "I've been in like one thing." So that we're talking about like 15 years ago. So over that course of our friendship, you know, he's had huge career success. So have I. Uh, it's we've grown together as as soul brothers. Um, and it's just been amazing that we've been able to, to maintain a friendship through uh, laughs, through fights, through all kinds of stuff. And it's just one. Uh, he's just one of so many other people that are near and dear to my heart that I feel like, you know, we're all soul travelers on this planet. Uh, that we check in with each other. But when we do, it's just like we never parted, you know, and and that's the beauty of it. When you go to places, people may not look like, you, but they are you. We are each other. And that's what I keep seeing over and over. So I've always seen whenever I've gone places, people just want to have three things. They want to feel seen. They want to feel empowered and they want to feel loved. No, mm. um, no matter the background, the gender, the sexuality, the ability, the age, None of that matters. We all want the same things. So our real, really our job is just to love each other. Mm. That's powerful. That's really powerful. So you you started talking about, when you, when you first started, you were talking about you were one of the only dudes writing. There was a lot of Black women writing. Sure. Um, so I want to I, I dig into that a little bit about the experience of you as a black man going abroad, but not just a black man, right? A black man who's a member of the LGBTQ community. So what has that experience been like for you, not only traveling, but being a leader in the space? I mean, <laughs> I'm laughing because it's been, it's meant a lot. Like it's, it's meant, like it's been a lot of things. It's, 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 uh, I would say, you know, for me, I, on one hand, I don't think of myself as a leader in that day-to-day -day kind of sense. You know, I'm just out here trying to do, just live my life. You know, I'm trying to make sure that my bills are paid, make sure I have some enjoyment in life, make sure that I'm, um, I wouldn't even say focused on creating a legacy. And part of the reason I say that is because it's kind of inherent in me. Um, and I think a lot, if you go to, if you go to like FAMU, if you go to HBCUs, if you come from an educated uh, background, and, and, like everybody's service oriented, 
My parents were teachers and they not only taught in class, but then they also taught after school. They coached, they mentored, they, you know, everybody at the church I grew up with, everybody was like serving. So that's just a part of being a human. That's a part of being a part of a community. So in that regard, my leadership has only been a natural function of what I was always modeled to, to, to emulate, which is you help people. You know, yes, you, you go for yours, but you go for yours in a way that allows you to help other people. There's no competition. You know, there's enough sky for every bird. So it, it, in, in that regard, I, did, I never thought of myself as a leader, but I recognize that other people have seen me as that. Other people have looked up to me um, as someone who's traveling, as someone who's stepping constantly out of my comfort zone, as someone who I have to constantly come out as gay, you know, because I'm not always... Some people, when they see me, they know what they're looking at. Other people know. And it's just, you know, I'm constantly owning my identity. That, I believe, is for a reason. It allows people the opportunity to show up and own their identities. It allows people, mm. and when I say that, I don't mean just other gay people, other LGBTQ people, other queer people, whatever term we're using. It's also... Um, loved ones of folks who are marginalized. It's anybody. It could be a straight white dude who ha I've had straight white guys who've written me after reading some of my blog posts and were like, oh my God, man, like I, it, I really related to that idea of being alienated in a particular place or being well-received in a particular place. So there's a lot of res human resonance that comes just from us owning who and whose we are, no matter what that is. And uh, th doing that gives other people the permission to be themselves. And that could just mean somebody that's a, a black dude that's growing up in the hood that likes listening to river dance. You know what I mean? Like uh -huh. that, you know, owning that, like, yeah, I like river dance. You know, like that, that is so, can sometimes just be powerful because it gives people the permission to, to, to not have to like exactly what somebody else says you're supposed to like, to uh -huh. not fit within the box of what people think you're supposed to be simply because of your outside packaging. So that's kind of, um, that's where I think the leadership comes in just because honestly, I can't live any other way other than authentic to myself. And so if I'm trying to, to be smaller, if I try to shrink, circumstances in my life conspire to force me into my own greatness, into my own alignment, no matter how I feel about it. So I might as well lean into it because no matter what, the universe is like, no, nah, you're going to shine, homie. So <laughs> you might as well shine. just do it anyway, as opposed to yep. getting dragged to it. Uh -huh. And, you know, what you're talking about showing up as your authentic self, you know, I feel like at this point in my life, I'm comfortable with that. But I think a huge piece of that was going abroad for me, right, and allowing me to kind of disrupt these ideas that have been framed for me about who I could be, who I was allowed to be and who I wasn't allowed to be. And when I got international and the more different countries I went to, I realized like, oh, they have a different understanding of who I am. They have a different understanding of what a black American yes. is. And through all those different experiences, I truly came to understand who I was. And since then, I've been able to carry that with me. And like you said, man, it doesn't matter who you talking to, whether they share your identity markers or not, everyone appreciates someone who shows up as their authentic self. Because it allows you to be your authentic self, right? Absolutely. And it also then, and like you mentioned, just seeing those different perspectives that people have of us, it gives us a point of engagement. And I think, you know, one of the responsibilities that comes along with the gifts of education, the gifts of articulation, the gifts, privileges of 
being formally, highly formally educated in English with the U.S. passport and all these highly melanated, you know, all those things that all these things that we uh, recognize as privileges. These are gifts that we are given to give to others. And there's responsibility that goes with those. And part of the responsibility is showing up for tough conversations, showing up in that in, as a, a clearing for people to work through their own stuff. And it may seem like, a, 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 you know, it's a, a burden, but it's really a blessing for me to help people transform themselves by asking me questions that for other people may find to be difficult or off-putting, regardless of whether it's race or sexuality or nationality or some of the other conversations that I've had with people. You know, I've been able to get folks to think differently about what they expect blackness to be about, what they expect gayness to be about, what they expect Americanness to be about. And, you know, for many years, I hated it until I started to realize, like, hmm, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of doing some important work here just in getting people to, to, to do and think and be differently. And it creates opportunities for other people coming along the way it, those were created for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm doing a lot of thinking. Um, I get real pensive at times. Um, but but before I continue, I, I definitely want to tell oh, you. I just love your delivery. I mean, no, don't apologize. You're being authentic. You know, I'm not serious about that apology. <laughs> but <laughs> along that line, I, I want I want to thank you for Fly Brother as a blog because. That's from a very personal point that I'm telling you thank you for, because that was the time when I encountered it, that I was looking for a way to move beyond my boundaries Mm. and and looking for people who I could find some type of identification with in feeling okay with that decision. Because kind of like you mentioned, I grew up in Austin, Texas. My mother is a black American woman. My dad is a black man from the Republic of Panama, but I grew up with, you know, boy, you have time for that. You know, like you mentioned, later. you'll do it later. You need to yeah, get a yeah. job. You need to do these things. You Boy, you have time for that. And, you know, it was little affirmations that I could get from outside people about some of the things that were going on in my mind and decisions that I was deciding to make. But the limited and still limited literature available or blogs available with Black men it really, those few really helped me. And I know you mentioned you were in Colombia and I went to Panama. And I think because at that time, being a Panamanian heritage, I, I I ended up making a decision on Panama because it was one blog in particular that I found, Colored Boy, which was written by my oh, great boy, Alex Hart. That, yes, man. Yes. Oh my God. You know? Just br- <laughs> James Baldwin level brilliance. On, on that brother. That. Yes. Amazing. And, and, and I'm not comparing Hilarious. him beyond hilarious i'm not comparing his work to your work i'm just saying that i was reading those at the same time but mm. my panamanian connection moved me on to panama sure, sure man over colombia because Bruh, i wasn't advocating yeah. colombia if you remember <laughs> i was not really advocating it, i'm so. going there i'm, I'm yeah. going there i'm going there because i'm here for the hard questions all right I, i'm the person like you mentioned you know it's different being an expat it's different and i don't call myself expat. it's different traveling abroad and living abroad sure. um and that's the that's the hard question that i'm going to bring into here because i've been to bogota plenty of times i've been to colombia 
I haven't been to Dominican Republic, but you started speaking Spanish. I said, ay, es un dominicano que me está hablando. Hombre, ay, papá, ay, sabe que todo el mundo estaba diciendo ay, que la mamá es dominicana, pero el papá es dominicano. And I had hair back there. I had the blow out, the curly, like the curly, pilly fade. I was, I was passing. I was passing. I was, was passing, ain't it? So, but, that's the, but see, that's the point that I'm, that's the question I want to ask you. Because in Latin America, in all my travels, I have and, and the reason a part of the reason why we call this black with blue passports, because I have to I have to pull out my passport for people to understand that I was American. Because in Panama, I was chumbo. When I went to Colombia, un negro, un negro, Nietzsche, that's what the people were calling me. In Cuba, they called me Chatro. They thought that I was of that place. And, 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 and most often not calling you Javier. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes those experiences, being able to pass as somebody from there was great, right? You might get a $3 taxi ride where they're hitting the gringo over the head for 20. <laughs> but at the same time, the police is harassing me in Panama because uh-huh. they, they think I'm a black, I'm a, they think I'm a Panamanian. So I'm, I, I wanna know like, particularly in Latin America, as a black American, how did you navigate those spaces? And I don't want to assume that they were all honky dory or great or they were all uh, bad, but I, I, from what I know, especially Bogota, what were your experiences like in those places? Oh man, I mean, and, and, and here's the thing: I mean, you really, you, you, there's a lot to unpack in this thing. So this is just be a teaser, and uh, y'all will have to read my book, uh, my forthcoming oh. book. And I say that because I decided a couple of weeks ago that now I'm okay. I'm, I'm enough removed to write about the four years that I lived in Colombia. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just interesting, but I had to be removed. I had to be removed, brother. I had to be removed. Um, I was there from 2005 to 2009. Then I lived in, in Brazil from, uh, I'll say Brazil, uh, just because I, I used to think it was kind of douchey when you would hear people on the news going like, yes, uh, Joseph Williams, CNN News, Santiago. Or Santo Domingo. And I'm just like, there's an English way you can say that. You don't have to be all right. <laughs> but anyway, um, I, I lived in Brazil after that. So so not only did I live in two Latin American countries, but I, plus the Dominican Republic where I did my study abroad, so three. Uh, but then I also traveled to most of them between the U.S. and, uh, and Brazil. I still haven't been to uh, Argentina. But anyway, my point in all of that is to say I've been to places where I have been confu- assumed to be local. Which means that, like you said, I've often been able to take advantage of the local uh, pricing scheme in certain places and at the same time be sent to the uh, servants entrance of an apartment building multiple times or be harassed by police until I opened my mouth in English or uh, be given crap service at a restaurant. Um, Certainly, I, I remember one time I was in Bogota. I was teaching at a university at the time. All of my coworkers, all of my colleagues were white, either European or North American, Canada or the US. And uh, we went to this place, Cafe de Buenos Aires, which was a spot where you could have tango lessons and dinner. And I just remember the service I got from this, this, the waiter who was my skin tone and how he would slam things down in front of me how he would uh, just completely, he was giving me so much attitude that my colleagues next to me were like, what is going on with this guy? And all I can say, what came to my mind is 
gay moment. Uh, one of my favorite lines from Evita, the musical, <laughs> where they say, though we wouldn't mind seeing her at Harrods, but behind the jewelry counter, not in front. Meaning mm-hmm. he didn't care if I would have been there working. It was the fact that he had to serve me. And because he couldn't imagine that I was just as foreign as any of the, my other, you know, colleagues sitting there, that I was some social climbing Negro from the hood that's up here skinning and grinning with all my white friends. He was have, was fit to be tied. The fact that he had to serve me. So he had to communicate to me that he felt I was out of place. There were times when me and my former partner at the time, uh, I, we went to an apartment, uh, to, to, we were looking for an apartment. We went to a place that said for rent, the owner opened the door, gave us the once over. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it was no longer for rent. Now I'm uppity. So I engaged, <laughs> <laughs> asked him why the sign was still up. And he said, Oh, I forgot to take it down. I said, take it down now. And, uh, then my, that, that sparked Uh, an argument with my former partner who was my skin tone, but did not identify as black Mm. that I, he was Colombian, right? Mm. So he's pregueño or, or, you know, moreno or whatever else, not black because of the, the, the cultural heritage in Latin America, which is not, uh, it's the inverse of the the one drop rule that we had in the United States. So whereas in the U S juridically you were black, if you had it one drop or at least one sixteenth, of African ancestry in most Southern states. In Latin America, if you had one drop of anything else, you could just not be black. Uh, and so that was kind of, and a lot of people don't understand the other's systems. You know, it requires a lot of reading and a lot of personal experience in these countries to know kind of where you may fit on the the, the racial hierarchy. Uh, and so anyway, you know, those kinds of microaggressions occurred uh, often in Bogota, in Barranquilla, where I lived, I had less personal experience with racism, but I heard in conversation more racism against darker skinned people from people who looked like me because I wasn't coded as black in Barranquilla and on the Caribbean coast of Colombia. I was coded as brown. Right. Uh, and so, like you said, like Javier said, I mean, people would be like El Negro, El Nietzsche, as opposed to just Javier, Ronald. I say that because there was this guy. <laughs> who sold mangoes outside of the school that I taught at. And uh, he was what we consider, you know, coffee regular in the United States. Uh, A black man is not necessarily mixed looking. And they called him El Negro. And I'm like, this man is probably in his 50s named Ronald. And y'all, these little, you know, school kids are buying mangoes del negro. And the fact that I even brought that up as uh, uh, something that was problematic labeled me as racist, labeled me as, oh, I forgot all the terms they used to call me, uh, aside from gringo hijo de puta. Uh, <laughs> a, a lot of, and I was like, I'll be that. Like I said, I mean, when you uppity, when you know who and whose you are, and before you're, before I was in alignment with my peace and my zen, you know, I was, I, oof, oof. You know, I was willing and waiting for the opportunity. To uh, <laughs> you know, we be we be ready. <laughs> like, hey, oh, we have time. We've got time. I may only have ten minutes before class, but that's enough time. You know what I'm saying? I got it. I got these ten minutes to remind you <laughs> to let you know what 400 years looks like. And uh, so you know, 
there were many, many moments like that. And I would say this, there was, it was part of my journey to, to stay there and endure for those four years, it, uh, you know, because other people would have left a long time before that. Part of it was me feeling like I was doing something wrong. If I wasn't having some phenomenal experience living overseas, what was wrong with me? Why wasn't, why I was just negative. I was just this, I was just that, you know, as opposed to honestly just recognizing there was nothing wrong. I was having a, um, a, 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 the heat and pressure that makes the diamond. I was having one of those types of experiences living in Colombia. And I would say this, it's a beautiful place to visit. It's a phenomenal country with a lot to offer. There's so many different people who have gone there and had phenomenal experiences and places are like people just because I don't have a good experience with one doesn't mean you won't. So I'll never tell you not to go someplace. But in my experience in the early 2000s living in Colombia, I had a lot of challenges that people aren't having now because they have had uh, conversations about race. They've had shifts in the societies. They've had more Black Americans going there, traveling there, living there. Uh, and so I know people now go there and don't, don't have any of the issues that I have. Part of the issues that I, uh, part of the reason I was having these issues, because again, like Javier said, it's looking local too. It's one thing when you kind of look like a gringo, you're showing up in Tim's and, you know, just like that, the, 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 um, that kind of pimp style walk that some of us do. Well, I, I don't do that. So, you know, and at a certain point after living in Latin America, you know, you start talking with your hands, you start looking more and more like the folks which was good camouflage until it wasn't good camouflage. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So a lot of those experiences that I had, a lot of travelers who may not know many, much Spanish or may, who may be very identifiably American didn't experience the same kind of microaggressions or overt racism that I experienced because I was able to perceive and pick up on it as someone who was close enough to the culture. So again, this, these issues are very, you know, there's a lot to them. There's a lot baked into that cake, but I'll, I'll just, you know, com complete this thought process or, or train of thought with the fact that for me, you know, when you look at the, the racial democracies in the world, the U S Brazil and South Africa, you know, really they're all just the same. They're the three flavors of Neapolitan ice cream, 98% the same exact ingredients. It's only the 2% that give you a difference in flavor and, and color. But I think when you go out into the world as a, as a Black American specifically, and, and certainly, I mean, Javier, you, you're a Black American with Panamanian heritage and, and, and other things, you know, Black American means a lot. But when you go out into the world, it's important to recognize that we're dealing with various forms of, of colonization and white supremacy. And the fact that they're all kind of embedded in ways that are insidious and have been used to keep us down and separate as people mm -hmm. and, and, and keep white folks imprisoned just as much as anybody else. So, you know, anyway, I'll, I'm done. Yeah, and, and, you know, that was beautiful one. <laughs> but also another thing, right, in addition to the racism, I think y'all were getting at this, but I know I've learned a lot from, from talking about Javier is the colorism piece, right? Oosh. Because me as a lighter skinned dude, I have... You know, I'm I'm framing my experiences. Oh, this is what it's like to be a black man abroad. Da, da, da. And then I meet Javier, who's been abroad yeah. as much, if not more, than I have different parts of the world. And he's like, Well, hey, this is my experience. This is my experience. And it just forces me to realize that, you know, that colorism is huge, man. And I don't often get mistaken for being a black local person. 
mm. ever. Right? Yeah, now, when I was in South Africa, colored, you know, yeah, I got yeah, to yeah. colored, which came definitely along with some stereotypes and some stigmas out there. I almost got I almost got hurt one time, but uh but you, you had know. to let them know. <laughs> hey, hey, no, I wasn't letting those brothers know. Don't let the food taste food. Oh, you said you weren't letting them know it? <laughs> no, those color brothers let me know. <laughs> oh, yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll bust out knives on you in a second. Hey, we're stereotyping. We're out stereotyping. There. We're generalizing. I'm sorry. <laughs> nah, we we having a conversation, man. But I met some great color people out there. And even these folks, they was cool, but they let me know they wasn't planning. That's cool. I, you, you just follow suit. You know, it's funny because my experiences in South Africa, which is a country that I love deeply. Um, the, I just remember talking to the sister one time and she was like, that's that's cute, brother. I, I'm not going to approximate her a- accent, but she was like, that's cute, brother, that you think you're black. That's cute. She was like, with your English name. And your peach nose. She was like, with your English name and your peach nose. That's cute that you think that. We receive, we love hanging out with you. And uh, and we'll just let that be that. And I was upset. And at the same time, as far, you know, according to the racial rubric mm-hmm. in South Africa, you know, I didn't have a tribal name. I, you know, it, 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 I get, I got the point. I got you the point. You understand it, right? And, and I received, I understood how I was being perceived there as well, you know? But see, look, I want to jump in here back to this racism, colorism piece in, in this mm-hmm. spectrum, because I've been in South Africa too. But when I was in South Africa, I was read as not only African, but a specific nationality within Africa. Mm. They told me I was Nigerian. And, and that comes with a whole lot because I'm, I'm big. <laughs> my six yeah. OK, so you oh, so, yeah, you're yeah. towering over. Exactly. Everybody. Right. Less. So and that comes with a whole bunch of stereotypes within itself in that space being framed that way as yeah. somebody who is a hustler, a shyster, mm-hmm. going to beat you up, going to do all of these negative things to you. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, you must be a bouncer because they were like, you a lot of Nigerians are bouncers. I'm like, what? What does that mean? And I'm also bringing that up, too, because in other places that I've gone, I've, I, I mostly get asked if I'm African. That is in Panama. I was I was either Jamaican or Haitian. That is, so I spoke mm-hmm. to it. It doesn't matter what I say. It, it, <laughs> Jamaican or Haitian. And in Europe, a woman uh, in Germany, a woman walked up to me directly in my face. And I'll never forget. I've probably shared this many a times and I will continue to share. But a white woman in Germany walked up to me and asked me dead in my face. She said, are you black, American? Or are you African? I, I, I kind of felt what she was going in the moment. But then I just asked it, answered the question as honestly as I could. I'm like, I'm black American. And she was like, good, because y'all are the ones that we like. Y'all got 50 cents. Y'all got this. And I was like, well, so what would happen if I was actually, in fact, African? How would that situation turned out differently? And, I, and I'm only bringing these things up because as we're talking about blackness, blackness is, is broad and, and it encompasses, like Ernest said, over 400, 500 years of history, sexual violence, different things that happen. That, that, and not everybody looks the same anyway, but even how those processes still work themselves out in our individual experiences and where we go because i I, i've just never not been at negro i've never not been that Mm -hmm. in any place that i've gone i've never not in latin never have not been at negro mexico city they were screaming out mutombo as i was walking down the street and it's just all right 
I'm like, damn, <laughs> this is what it's about. You know what I'm saying? Mutombo, mutombo, mutombo. I'm like, God. Oh, my God. I got to stop So, look, hey, we heard it. We already over, but, man, this has been, this has been wildly entertaining. I, I do have a final question I want to ask you, but before then, I'm going to come with a couple rapid-fire questions. You all just right, all right. Come with a quick response. Javier, if you got some questions, too, throw them in there. My first is, favorite place to travel to? South Africa. Favorite, best place for Black Americans to travel to? South Africa. Best food you've had abroad? <sighs> What's coming to my head is Georgian food in the Republic, in, in Georgia, not the state. <laughs> Though, you know, the state got good food too, <laughs> but the, the country. Really? What? Okay, what was that food? I didn't expect Oh my that. God, man. So Georgia is on the Silk Road. You know, like it's got a fusion of East and West and North and South. Like it's just got everything. It's unsung and they use a lot of butter. All right. <laughs> the country where you partied the most? Brazil. <laughs> Followed closely by Colombia. All right. Javier, you got me. I ain't got no rapid fire questions. I, I, I thought you were going to say Georgia sweet potato collard greens. I was going to ride with I that. mean, listen, bro, you can get <laughs> collard greens in Georgia, the country, and chitterlings. In fact, oh, they brought God. us this meat platter with these sausages on it, and I was like looking at the garnish. Oh, my. <laughs> I think that's a chitlin. <laughs> and so I said, excuse me, miss, are these pig intestines? And she was like, yes. <laughs> and I was like, yes. Uh, I don't care. I, I know half the most of the people who eat chitlins be trying to act like they don't. So, <laughs> that's your that's your Jacksonville heritage that's, coming out. That is oh, really? brother. I you're you are absolutely right. That is. Uh and and I will say this: the reason I say South Africa for black Americans is because um and, and obviously the continent is incredible. There's so many different places to go to that are phenomenal. I did always feel welcomed in South Africa. Like people were like, you know, welcome home. Like even as the sister, as she was laughing, telling me I wasn't black, it was not a, it, 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 she, it was with love, you know? And that's what I believe uh, is very present for black Americans in South Africa, simply because they know what it's like. They know what apartheid, they had it apartheid. We had apartheid. You know, so it doesn't mean that there aren't other places for people to go to uh, where black where you will feel welcome. Uh, that's just my personal totally. take on it. And also, I want to say, too, after our conversation about the challenges we've had abroad, I wouldn't change a single minute with all the craziness that I've experienced. I would not change a single experience that I've had. Everybody listening to this needs to go overseas, try to live overseas if you get a chance to don't let. Uh, the fear of racism or colorism or any of the other human challenges that we may uh, encounter deter you from going out and being a part of the world because you deserve it. Sorry. And there's so many more phenomenal things than, than just that. And, right. and we have a program in Cape Town, South Africa. And, you know, we take a lot of students and the majority of the students we take on that trip are black men. In, in 2018, we took 82 students, 55 were black. And they loved it. And just for so many of the same reasons that you're identifying, right? Um, they, they really enjoyed the trip. So hopefully we get to go back there this year. Man, COVID is Amen. quite a bit of a challenge. Um, but my last question for you is, Brother Ernest, you have been given $100 million Oof, to spend on a project. 
What you going to do with it? Oh, my slate of film and television projects here at Presidio Pictures. That, that's already been budgeted. So, <laughs> like, Mill, like, we got plenty of things we could do with that money already. I know who I will be hiring. I know what stories we're going to put into production right away. That's like a three, that's a three-year slate right there. And what destination would you want to go to maybe that you, that you haven't been able to get to yet? Hmm. I, uh, Greenland. Uh, Maldives, mm. Madagascar. Mm. And mm. I keep saying Nigeria, which I know is coming up uh, just because like every Nigerian that I know has been hilarious and just <laughs> great storytellers, funny, you know, just, just I, I know it would be crazy, but in all the best ways, you know, so I'm, I'm excited to get to Nigeria sooner than later. Oh, that's beautiful, man. That's beautiful. Um, well, that's all I got, man. We we appreciate your time, your spirit, your energy, your jokes, um, and your authentic self, man. I, I, this was a very enjoyable interview for me. Um, I'm sure it was for Javi as well. Uh, so we definitely appreciate you, brother. Javier? No, that's it. Appreciate it, Ernest. I've uh, been rocking with you for a minute. You inspired Thank me you, so man. much to take the steps that I've taken. And if you didn't do what you've done, what you did, I wouldn't be able to have take the steps that I did. And like you said, out of all the unfortunate things that I have experienced, they actually do not outweigh all the positive benefits that I've had by being able to move beyond my borders. And I mean, I wouldn't, there are some violences that I would change, but for the most mm-hmm. part, I wouldn't change anything. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'll accept those too, because it has made me a very strong advocate for the things that I find most important when thinking about black life in Latin America and being able to have a full self. And I know a lot of that comes from, like you mentioned, all those experiences that I had. So thank you for allowing me to put that back into perspective and and, and understanding that in the way that I'm moving forward. But thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for Fly Brother as somebody who has literally benefited from it from its earlier stages. Something that you had to have put down when you was on the set at FAMU on a Friday doing living it up so thank you thank you Lizard, that you're welcome both gentlemen and i appreciate the reflectiveness the reflection uh at, at you know what i've been doing but also i just want to honor and recognize you both doctors walker and wallace i'm saying that because the again the, the power that was required to get to that point in your lives just speaks not only to our resilience as a people but our determination to continue to shine, to continue to excel. It is within us. We can't do anything but. And so therefore it is important for me to recognize that. And it's important for you all to continue to to just be present, to be visible for other folks to see exactly who they can be. So thank you all for that. Appreciate you, appreciate you. Appreciate you. Check this brother out, fly brother, all right? And we out. Thank y'all for checking out another episode of Black with Blue Passwords with Javier Wallace and Dr. Devin Walker. Make sure y'all follow us and check us out on social media at DDCE Global, World Walker Foundation, Black Austin Tours, Afro-Latino Travel, and keep this conversation going. Hey, be safe, y'all, and we'll see y'all next time.